0: So we're recording here on Friday, June 29, and uh, I've got Matthew Panzerino from TechCrunch here who just dropped a huge exclusive this morning on the new new maps coming to Apple Maps. Uh, And reading your story, I don't know if this was a problem for you or it would have been for me, is writing the whole story, is knowing when to use capital M for the actual product (laughs) <laughs> maps and when to use right. lowercase m map to talk about the actual map within the app maps, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. Was, that would have driven me nuts while I was writing it. And I think yeah. I think you got them all right. It's but it's tricky.
1: It is, and then there were some points at which I used lowercase maps on purpose. There's a hundred and one different um, maps. In the piece, so the 101 different times I say maps, so getting them getting them all right was a little hairy from time to time. But yeah, some it's some sentences are literally like ba- maps, and then the other maps is three words away. You know, yeah. so you have to be really cautious about it.
0: it I don't know what else. This is it, somebody on Twitter. I think it was Nevin Mergen the other day pointed out that on iOS, the apps that Apple ships with iOS. The only ones that have like I- I- interesting names or original names are like Safari, iTunes. Oh right. Mm-hmm. I forget what else. But like you know, like he said, like if they were if they launched Safari today, they would just call it Web. And I don't know if that's true <laughs> right. or not. I don't know if that's true, but it's yeah. certainly true for all the other ones where it's just Mail, Notes, Maps. And I, I, I'm mm-hmm. not saying that Map should have a cutesy name like Safari, but it certainly makes writing about the difference between the actual map data and the app, you know, difficult. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I don't know what the I don't know where their naming kind of took a uh, left turn into bland land. I think it was you know sort of like indicative of this fact that they wanted everything to be universal, you know, and everything to be to feel like. You know, if they're building out these native apps and you know, giving them the the remit to own that space on the phone, then yep. they should be named that way. And yep. I think Safari, of course, was just like, "Hey, if we're going to put a web browser on this phone, which is essentially Safari that we've just you know slightly reframework to work on this phone, we'll just call it Safari." All right.
0: Uh, So the big story is the lowercase m maps in Apple Maps are Apple has been at work on their own home, completely homegrown next generation level of maps for four years. And they're going to start rolling out next week in for San Francisco, the city of San Francisco for iOS 12 beta users. And then by fall, quote unquote, Northern California for everyone.
1: Yeah, technically Bay Area for many okay. users. So you'll get San Francisco, you'll get Cupertino, of um, uh, San Jose, you know some of the East Bay, that sort of thing. But it's all up, all up there. Uh, home, home base, obviously for Apple.
0: All right. Um. <laughs> and it's I well how would you describe so the idea part of the story here is that this is entirely apple 's homegrown mapping solution, so what what have we been seeing for the last seven years in apple right Maps?
1: yeah, so I mean I think there's two two big things one you've got yes what is the difference between the two and then two you know exactly what is Apple building itself and not even in the new maps and so the the maps that we've been seeing so far especially the ones that we saw at launch um, were really a, a an Apple front end or face you know whatever you want to call it the, the UI. Of of maps, uh, but powered by data from partners. A large amount of the data came from companies like TomTom Tom and OpenStreetMaps. Right. Uh, OpenStreetMaps being a, a sort of uh, UGC collaborative uh, mapping effort, and then TomTom Tom being, of course, one of the largest commercial providers of mapping data in the world. Um, they're I, I don't get I don't know they're they're I think they're a German company. Hmm. i'm uh, that's probably going to be wrong somebody's going to correct me but anyhow they're they're not a u.s company um they they've been building maps for a long time they've been using a lot of things most famously i think for those of us who are old uh, in their own consumer gps devices you know the tom tom devices were some of the first you know sort of add-on gps devices you could put in your car before navi systems were you know came with every prius or whatever hmm. um so that data formed what they called uh, a base map, and so in mapping you have uh, a structure that is largely based on layers, uh, and obviously most most famously you've got like a a two D layer and then like a satellite layer, and, and then Apple has added a three D layer uh, with flyover. Um, and Google has done much the same over the years, but those layers of maps that, that comes from traditional map making as well, where they'd have overlays that kind of show different types of information. Um, but the base, the base map is, sort of the most important because it's what you build the layers on top of uh, to represent or to to modify. And so the base maps were always external data, third-party data, not hmm. gathered or collated directly by Apple, but instead provided by partners, uh, updated by partners, maintained by partners, uh, and then of course licensed by Apple. Um, so there were a bunch of limitations there. Uh, one big major limitation is if you need to make an update or correction to a map, uh, that has to go through a loop where a correction gets noted either internally at Apple, or of course from you know Apple's eventually launched uh, third party or not third party, but um, external reporting tool. You know you can go in there and and hit report, hey this location's wrong or whatever in, in your copy of Maps. Um, All of those reports had to then go out to the third party, be corrected by the third party, and then updated in the data that it delivered to Apple. Um, And then some of that data, I'm sure, is delivered live, and some of it is sort of, you know, static, like in other words, hosted by Apple, and they just update it however often the, the third party provider provides them with a batch update. So you have a long loop between the time that something is known to be wrong and the time it is in fact fixed or corrected in maps for the consumer there's a f- you know, fairly long loop there that could last could be months or or even longer sometimes so one of the that's one of the major problems that Apple needed to solve to fix so to speak um by building its own base maps and owning those base layer maps is that the loop was shortened by essentially an entire company right so yeah. now it's within Apple those changes can be made um aggressively more frequently uh at a a more rapid pace um and then the second part of the equation is you have external licensees so you have limitations as to what you can do with that data so if you have uh, for instance Apple Maps doesn't have local caching and some of that has to do with licensing agreements um, you know that the maps data can't be stored locally it has to be streamed etc so anyhow there's there's there, there were very solid limitations that caused Apple to say to come to this realization that if maps which is a cornerstone of a lot of different functions of the phone, not just maps uh if they're going to own that then they should own that and that's why they decided to start building their own base maps and then adding their own uh, or their own remixes of layers on top of that
0: yeah <clears throat> the licensing question uh it gets into the entire origin story of apple maps because you know famously the backstory is before there was apple maps there were you know the ios shipped with a maps app that used google maps as the back end and <laughs> i loved your lead the lead of, of your article was <laughs> i'm not sure if you're aware but the launch of apple maps <laughs> went poorly <laughs> that's such a great lead man i i mean I, I it's like man that's a sentence i i uh part of it wasn't just that it was a, a bad launch and you know or it, and had some some really glaringly bad errors you know bridges that that looked like they were you know like from satellite view looked like they'd melted right. um yeah. You know, it, it, driving directions that would send you on impossible routes,
1: yeah, it, or, or into the ocean. Things into like, the
0: ocean, right? Yeah, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, just all sorts of comical things. Yeah, into the ocean. Who knows what else? Mm-hmm. Um, um, but it was that it, it was on the heels of an app that, t- until that rolled out, was using Google Maps and didn't have those problems. Um and so you know the the reaction was why would Apple do this why didn't they just stick with Google Maps mm-hmm. and right there, I thought that that was the one question I had with your story where you you got to talk to Eddie Q who's in charge of the maps team and it, it, he makes it sound it, it, in a quote I forget where it is here in the story about whether or not they wanted to get do maps in the first place mm-hmm. uh, it, what did, here's it, here's the we decided to. I forget where the quote is, but I don't think I think that's a little disingenuous. I felt like they had to. Like the backstory I know of the situation is that their their hand was forced to do their own maps if they wanted to remain competitive because Google was asking for more, and you know you do touch on the privacy issue repeatedly, and you you mentioned it almost you talked to a bunch of people at Apple. you spent a lot of time on this story, and that everybody you spoke to emphasized that this whole new thing that they've built was designed with privacy from the ground up, and we 'll get into how why that's important because they 're using i individual iPhones to collect data um, mm-hmm. but that privacy issue is really what drove them away from Google. Back in 2010 or whenever this was, um, because the maps that they had from Google originally in iOS weren't vector based; they were bitmaps. Right. Um, so the meaning, and, and for those of you who don't know, that it's a huge difference. It's the difference between a scalable graphic format, you know, like uh, uh, SVG, versus a just pixel by pixel. That's a bitmap, just a bunch of pixels, and so the old apple maps were bitmap based and so at different resolutions it would be a different just bitmap graphic and you'd zoom in and didn't really you'd have to wait for new new tiles to to come down whereas if you have a vector map it's just a huge difference in terms of as you pinch and zoom it it scales smoothly uh, mm-hmm. They didn't have the licensing rights to do turn by turn directions. And that is, you know, it, in hindsight, it's right. crazy, right? That's one of those things like when you think about the iPhone originally in 2007, didn't even have video, didn't shoot video on the camera. It's like, well, that mm-hmm. seems nuts. Like not having turn by turn directions on your phone built in seems nuts now. And they didn't have it then, and they couldn't add it without acquiescing to licensing terms from Google that they were unwilling to swallow. They were between a rock and a hard place. Effectively, they couldn't mm-hmm. say yes to Google without uh, agreeing to things they didn't want to agree to, and their own technology wasn't ready to go. Is basically that's basically the story of how uh, why Apple launched Maps even though it was in pretty pretty shoddy shape.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think basically that's. I think you're exactly right. Obviously, it's first strategically from a business angle. You know, that's why they had to do it. Um, the, I didn't get too
0: much into that because I didn't right. really, you know. And they, I mean, they I, wouldn't have talked about it.
1: Not, not to, probably not. But in, at the same time, there have been endless pieces written about that era of Apple Maps, you know, of of the, the goings-on. I mean, I've written some over the years, you know, of All the right. goings-on behind the scenes, and you have, and and plenty of other people have analyzed it, and plenty of good reporters have, like, gotten stories about sort of what went wrong. And I think everybody kind of understands there was, you know, dysfunction within the organization that led to, you know, the maps kind of being shipped in the state that they were, but they were also not Helped by any means by the timetable and the business pressures and everything right. else, right, so you had you had like a perfect storm of of situation where you had to launch something and yet that you knew that thing wasn't going to be as good as you wanted it to be and I think they they acknowledge that I mean I think Eddie acknowledges it um it pretty directly and I, the maps folks that I talked to at apple it wasn't you know there was no denial there. Right. Nobody, nobody there once (laughs) tried to convince me that the original version of maps was just great. You know, I mean, obviously, very famously, Tim apologized publicly. But these are also people that have worked on maps for a long time and been at Apple for many, many years. They have very senior people working on this project now. And so, you know, many of them might have had the instinct to, to kind of to defend themselves in that regard. And I think basically it was, you know, we knew we had to do it. We did it with what we had available to us at the time, which is partner data. Um, and, you know, you saw what happened. Right. So since then, you know, I think that many people on the Maps team and, and people at Apple do feel that they've improved Maps significantly. And I think that they have. And I don't I don't mean to say that it's perfect or I don't mean to say that, you know, it's in a state where I think it's it's all fine and why are they even doing this new thing? It certainly isn't in that arena at all Hmm. but it's a damn sight better than it was when it launched uh in terms of directions and usability and of course it's got like transport in now and a bunch Mm. of other uh, of other nice improvements so they've they've sort of been gussying up the house you know as they've gone um and it's certainly in in much better shape now but they were gussying up a house that they built in a hurry Right. And so, if the timbers are crooked, you know, and the foundation is is leaning to one side, you're never going to be able to build as high as you want. And that's, I think, where they ended up. Yeah. And Eddie's answer to me when I asked him about like why now and you know how long did it take and all of that stuff, he said it took four years, which would mean that it was started, you know, let's call it two thousand in the two thousand fourteen thirteen fourteen, you know, kind of range somewhere right. in there, um, and they felt that they were starting to get critical mass on the number of devices that were out there so that they could start collecting data from them in a in a meaningful but yet privacy conscious way that allowed them to augment the information that they'd have from maps and they knew at that point they came to this realization hey we launched maps because we had to for a variety of reasons as you outlined Um, but we also realized that the future of all of these devices is location based. Whether you know, I don't care whether it's AR or um, or or GPS direction, GPS based directions or um, APIs that are provided to developers. There are just dozens of threads that touch maps. You know, maps is just everywhere in the phone. You know, it's it's a integral part of a majority of features of the phone. Can't find a a single marquee feature of the phone that doesn't tap it somehow i mean you say oh the camera's the reason people buy phones yeah sure that's great but you know exactly where every photo was taken because of maps you know and then like there's it touches everything and so they figured if we're gonna we we already own it we already took the responsibility to do it (laughs) you know it's already our bag you know it's already we're already holding the bag so if we're gonna hold that bag we should figure out Um, how to build it from the ground up and stop relying on partners. And this is a constant refrain, as you've written about, as many people have have uh, uh, noticed over the past few years, is that Apple is making itself into something that owns all of its key core features, whether that's processor design or or UI or, or maps. So they figured, hey, we've got a couple of colliding circumstances that Hmm. allow us to do this now one we've got resources up the yang so we can we can field these vans we can start building them we can learn how to make them i mean people started seeing these vans on the on the street in like 2015 or whatever they were obviously building them in 2014 to try and get them on the street in 2015 and then you look at now, and we're they're just starting to use some of the data that they've collected with these vans. So it wasn't like they started collecting data back then, and now all the data is going in. They had to figure out how to do it, right? Like they had to build the van, had to hire the people, build the vans, do all that stuff. Well, there's a there's and a couple that's where we are
0: there's a couple of mentions in your story about the building custom tools, right? So a big mm-hmm. part of that is is the software that drives these right. vans and that uses that data. Um you also mentioned that they've built custom tools so that Apple's own human uh, uh, I think they're called editors, map editors, but you know, human yep. beings. That's
1: the way they were referred to me as well anyway.
0: Right, human beings can look at, you know, there's been reports that you know, that there's something's wrong with this, you know, the the this intersection or the entrance to this building mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um and that they've got tools so that they can just go in and edit it, and then that the the fix goes live. You know, taking out that loop that you were talking about with the license stuff from TomTom, where then they could, you know, the old days it was like file they'd file a report with TomTom and wait for TomTom to update their thing, hopefully, mm-hmm. and then it comes back and could roll out. But now they've built these tools, and you know what? It takes time to to build good tools. You know, it does.
1: And I'll tell you, I saw, I don't know, maybe. I don't know 8 to 10 different tools or different applications of tools uh, you know in that they had built and these the scenarios that are i mentioned some of them in the piece but it, it, I didn't really get into it as much as I could because you got to sort of stop writing at some point but uh, the the tools are very interesting they are they are meant for humans to use so they're they're meant for human editors to be able to rapidly clip through um you know, issues or flagged issues and decide what to do about them, right? And to make a human call of what to do. So in the case of an intersection, you know, a new intersection goes up and and um, something somebody flags it that, oh, this told me to turn left or whatever, and they go to look at that incident report, they t- tap through to the next flag for that section of the map, and the flag... Um, says hey something's up with the lanes here and they have tools that they can just basically click on a lane and say oh okay you're supposed to be attached to this lane and they click on another one and bloop right it attaches it and from that point on once they co- commit that change they then commit it it goes into review it gets reviewed and they get it's approved right but right. all within apple's organization now um it appears in the map boom Done yeah. right now, that lane connects properly, and it doesn't tell you to make a U turn instead of a left turn, right? Or it doesn't tell you to go from the inside lane to the outside lane because one of the new things is better lane guidance with like more mm. accurate lanes, um, including bike lanes and everything else. Mm. Um, their lane guidance I have, I will cool. I'll just
0: say this as an aside: their lane guidance has gotten significantly better.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and it's and lane guidance is one of those things that we we talked to, uh, about this through various. Um, aspects of maps but it's one of those things that just affects cognitive load a massive amount with maps because you're you're going 80 or well or you're going uh 55 uh (laughs) whatever you're going uh insert legal speed limit here um and you're trying to figure out should i take this exit do i need to be in the left hand side of the exit or the right hand side you know all of these decisions that you're making in a rapid clip with a two-ton vehicle and Anytime that you can get very, very precise, like, hey, no, you need to be right here. You're in the right place. It's all good. We got this handled. Um, it improves safety. It improves, you know, it lessens stress. Um, yeah. There's a lot of benefits there. So, yeah, lane guidance seems like one of those conveniences. But yeah. in effect, I think it, it makes driving safer, you yeah. know, so you and don't have to jet over five it's lanes. It's also
0: the sort of thing that can change very rapidly when there's construction. That, you know, what used to be maybe there were two lanes that you could take to get off here because it's busy, but now it's just one lane. You, you know, you the lane guidance has to be different Absolutely. temporarily.
1: Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff that they're. They're hoping will get flagged and corrected yeah. very quickly. And some of the flagging will happen automatically through machine learning tools or, um, you know, kind of algorithmic segmentation. And then some of it will happen just via humans reporting it. Yeah. Um, and some of it they, they use uh, they're using city data. Yeah. You know, the city says, hey, we've we got a new subdivision and here's all the addresses for the subdivision. Um, you know, they can say, OK, cool. Let's task a van. The van goes and ruds the subdivision. Um, so it has, now it has, uh, exact tracking data, imagery and, uh, GPS location, um, and LiDAR data, so a 3D point cloud of the neighborhood, um, and then you can go in and correct all the addresses to make sure they're attached to the right houses uh, within a few minutes. I mean, I saw the uh, the operations. I mean, one person could clear a subdivision in just a couple of minutes and make hmm. sure that all the addresses are pinned to the right houses and um, that the directions are correct. And then that road system can get added very, okay. very quickly.
0: All right, I have a lot more to say about maps or to ask you about maps, but in the in the meantime, let's take a break here and thank our first sponsor, brand new sponsor on the show. Uh, they have sponsored my website before, but they're brand new on the show, Colide, K-O-L-I-D-E. They're a new startup, and they're working to solve security challenges for tech companies that run large Mac fleets. And that's a lot of tech companies out there that, have, that are largely Mac-based. They believe that these organizations Macs which are often driven by software engineers and designers who have broad access to to valuable intellectual property and customer data, are low-hanging fruit for compromise, not because macOS is somehow insecure, it's not, but just that the daily grind of software development causes employees to disable important security features or maybe make risky decisions with where they put data temporarily. Uh, Examples, what good is full disk encryption if your users are making unencrypted time machine backups? Or what good is using SSH keys to access a production server if that key isn't encrypted and resides in a share folder? you know, there's all sorts of issues like that, and Colide is tackling them specifically for tech companies with large Mac fleets, and they've just launched their first product. It's called Collide Cloud, and it's the first product in the industry that takes these type of user-driven security holes seriously and helps you understand the cause-and-effect relationships between the many seemingly innocuous or disconnected actions that users can take a potentially catastrophic consequences if something like valuable, like private customer data or intellectual property were somehow it leaked. Uh, Colide not only allows you to detect dozens of these situations, but it also includes a non-obtrusive menu bar app, just a simple little thing that sits in the menu, um, and then you can deploy this to the users to effectively communicate your organization's security policy. It doesn't just help employees who are unaware of the policy, but also highly technical employees who get it, who understand these things, um, but who sometimes turn off security features temporarily for convenience and then forget to turn them back on. All of this is powered by OS Query, an incredibly performant and open source agent that was created by Collide's founders during their time at Facebook. OS Query is 100% open source. Doesn't degrade the performance of your Macs. And the project is committed to uh, providing important information to security analysts without violating the privacy of end users. So, here's you can try it free for the first 10 devices. Colide Cloud is a free product for up to 10 devices. And you can sign up on their website today at colide.com. That's all you need to know Colide.com, 10 devices for free. It's a great service it really seems like a bunch of interesting uh, interesting people working there uh, in my interaction with them so go check them out really appreciate their sponsoring the show uh, so here's the thing to me and I've been th- I think it applies to more than maps is that there's this basic argument out there that in areas where Apple is behind let's say maps and Siri are as two examples and you know Siri is a broad range of products underneath one umbrella mm-hmm. term, but let's just say, just to keep to keep the conversation moving. And competitors like Amazon and Google uh, are less privacy-focused than Apple. Uh, and th- th- the, there's this argument that because Apple isn't collecting more data and then aggregating it in the cloud and doing all this work up there... That's why they're behind. And I've asked Apple executives about it, you know, like on my show. Uh, and and they're adamant that their strategy of distributing this and having the private stuff local, that your phone mm-hmm. is the only device that knows that you, Matthew Panzerino, are making this trip from A to B. And that any, uh, uh, what do they call them, slices of that trip
1: that while segments,
0: segments of the trip that are transmitted to the cloud so that Apple can help improve maps are done in a completely anonymous way with these rotating numeric IDs that aren't associated with you, such that not only does Apple not know and can't know that there's no way it could put the pieces it has back together to know that Matthew Panzerino went from point A to point B, that they can't even tell that someone went from point A to point B because the individual segments each have a different rotated ID. Uh, right. Basically, basically, what I think Apple's strategy is that they are doing massively parallel um, computation to, to do these things, like improve Siri and improve Maps, but that the parallelization is these 100 billion or however many, not 100 billion, 100, 100 million, however many active iPhones and iPads and, and Macs there are.
1: 1.3 billion or something like that.
0: Yeah. You know, that you multiply the computing power of these devices by the number of devices, and there's there's a an incredible amount of parallel computing power out there. And I think that what they're saying with Maps is that's sort of one of the vectors they're taking to to improve this.
1: Yeah, I mean, what they're doing has a lot to do with the the concept of edge computing. Um, And, you know, for those listeners who may not know, you know, edge computing is basically, it's a type of cloud computing, but it involves more... Distributed nodes that are sort of on the uh, quote-unquote edge of the internet, which basically means where the internet comes in contact with the physical world. Um, so, for instance, an edge computing device may exist on the furthest node of a network to support local devices, uh, let's say at a facility, and it, it can serve up files and do all these kinds of things that normally a cloud server, let's say, hosted on AWS would, would do, but it could do it faster because it's closer. And it could do it with redundancy and it could do it with security because it's the only node that could communicate with the remote nodes, um, you know, and it itself communicates back with the server, et cetera, et cetera, right? There are a bunch of different benefits to edge computing, and I'm a dummy, so I don't really – like I'm no edge computing expert, right? Right. But edge computing or fog computing is basically this idea that you're going to have a lot of these powerful individual nodes, that make up the cloud, and each one of those nodes will have its own responsibilities. And to me, I think a lot of people do not talk about it in this context, and maybe somebody who listens to this will be like, oh, well, here's why it's fundamentally wrong and different and all that. But to me, it shares a lot of characteristics with edge computing because it allows the local device to take care of its local business and that by local device, I mean your iPhone. To say, hey, I'm going to take care of the personalization aspects. I'm going to run AI and ML on your photos. I'm going to, you know, handle personal requests uh, and then handle translating those into generic requests and then passing those on and getting that back and translating them back into personal requests. Right? Um, you know, all of that stuff. And then times 1.3 billion of those, and then you have the central computing. Stuff that Apple is doing on the generic parts of that data, the parts of that data that will benefit the whole by providing a base layer Hmm. of, you know, compute uh, power or uh, machine learning models. Like one of the announcements at WWDC that ties in closely with this is that, um, you know, Apple has uh, given developers the ability to create their own uh, training models um, very, very easily using Xcode. To pop it open, you know, train a library on a set of images and get like a nice personalized, um, you know, training bolus for their particular app. Rather than having to buy a generic one and then retrain it with, with unique, unique images. And one of Apple's big selling points on it is that it's incredibly small. It's like 70% smaller and a lot, hell of a lot faster than a normal training model because all of the base training is built in so the apple provides all of that automatically and then you only have to add in your specialized training on top of it so it's this idea that they are providing like a bunch of generic stuff that will get you 70 80% of the way there and then you bring the last 20% and that is your personal stuff, mm-hmm. either from an app developer's perspective, obviously, or you as an individual being able to take advantage of all the vast compute power that Apple has at its disposal. And then guess what? If I want to process my 1,500 photos I shot on vacation or allow them to be processed, that's all happening locally and securely and remotely on my device.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that this new Maps project um, – is going to bring or says supposedly going to bring uh, and the examples that they've shown in the screenshots they provided, you certainly do um, is filling in the areas between roads. So if it's a city filling in buildings that actually have the outline of the building, the actual building based on some combination of satellite views and the street views that they might have but that's so, for example, not when you're in the, the satellite view, but when you're actually on just the map view, you could see something like your example is like the Salesforce Tower, which has a very distinctive look. Um, you know, every city has buildings like that, right? There's, you know, maybe a bunch of generic buildings, but you are you can uh, like here, here in Philly City Hall would be one, you know, like you, it's mm-hmm. just a very distinctive building. And it is it, it has been a tremendous advantage for Google maps. And for me as a very visual person, I I use Apple maps most of the time, but I have to admit that that being able to navigate and see just the sort of, and and it's a tricky illustration problem, right? That you're looking at a 2d map from the top down, but you want to get a sort of 3d representation of the top of the building, which might be a skyscraper. It might just be a two or three story building. You know, how do you, how do you reflect Mm that? Um, And it looks like they're bringing it. And any the other thing is filling in details like park areas and grass and and things like that, where mm-hmm. you know Google's had that in great detail. And Apple, it just looks like dead. It's just white space, right?
1: Yeah, they they've got uh, they've got some definite improvements there. They, I mean, th- those come from. And I asked this, like, oh, okay, well, what you know, what's your primary source of all this data? You know, is it imaging? Is it the vans? Is it satellite? You know, what 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 is it? And then the answer really varies depending on what it is. Like for instance, the ground cover, the foliage, they are using significantly higher resolution satellite. Uh, images now Um, I I didn't ask for the provider I don't even know if they would have said it's not really that germane but whatever the previous stuff that they were using they're using better stuff now higher resolution stuff which allows them to more and then they run of course computer vision um, algorithms on that which tell them Hey, this is a tree. This is grass. This is a pathway. Right. You know that sort of thing, which allows them to really, really flesh out um, the outlines of uh, foliage. Or uh, in the example, the the delta near Fort Bragg or whatever. You know, like that. There are definitely some opportunities for it to to more accurately represent the physical world in a way that is so improved it can actually improve your ability to use the map right like you could say like oh yeah that's the edge of the grass oh right. that's where i'm standing right yeah. you know as opposed to oh i'm standing somewhere in this blank empty space it's not just for looks it it's actually very effective as a as a marker yeah. you know, to tell you where you are in the world. So well, that, was, and, that was a big,
0: big thing for them. Adding things like, in, in, in addition to the roads of a city, having the, here's the actual path of the footpaths through the park, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I get it. Yeah. There's the circle in the middle with the fountain and, oh, I can go this way or that way. You know, I recognize, you could recognize the park by the footpath, you know, map. And that's the sort of thing that, that Apple maps was, was lacking for a while. Um, Another thing, this is a, here's a segment from your article. Um, and this to me is a big deal. And I was just thinking about this at WWDC, um, a couple weeks ago. Uh, it, you said it also allows for access points to be set making Apple maps smarter about the quote last 50 feet of your journey. So you've made it to the building, but what street is the entrance actually on? That's like such a huge problem. Um, and I guess I never really thought about it, but I think Eddie Q is probably right that a lot of buildings, they'll say that they they want to be, they want their address to be 400 market street because that's a nice address and that's the street they want to be on. But the, for mm-hmm. architectural reasons, the entrance is on a, the street around the corner, you know? And so you, you, you get directions to 400 market street and there's the building, but where do you go in? I, I've seen this and, uh, friend of the show, Paul Kfasas and I were in, when we were This is what the WDBDC reminder, we were walking to lunch at, in San Jose and, um, a, a fellow, you know, obviously English as a second language was, uh, there's like an immigration building there. Um, and he had just gotten out of, you know, like a cab or an Uber or something and he had the address and he obviously had like, you know, some kind of important meeting for his, you know, whatever. But I mean, He's obviously an immigrant. He's uh, meeting at the immigration center. He's standing right where he's got a phone, and it's telling him Mm -hmm. he's at the right place.
1: You're there, and he asked
0: us. He was like asked us if we knew how to get in, and we didn't. We're not from San Jose, but we wanted to help the fellow. And uh, you know what the truth was? He he was he was actually like 500 feet away and around a corner from where he needed to go. It was nowhere, (laughs) and it wasn't even visible, right? But he was at the right place, you know, and so.
1: And buildings get reconfigured over time, right, like right. the doors used to be here, but now yeah. they 're over there because yeah. of zoning restrictions or you know yeah. some new owner or whatever yeah. but yeah, exactly,
0: yeah, but that last fifty feet is a huge next level in mapping, just in terms of having the street address you know that was that that was that 's just table stakes now you know the the actual knowing it is is a huge part of it. And I know that all the the self-driving car or not self-driving car, the uh, ride sharing car companies like Uber and Lyft are all working on the same problem, too, because it's a huge issue Mm -hmm. with getting picked up at the right place that, you know, knowing that if you're at a certain building, uh, you know, the place, the place where you walk out the door and let's say it's raining. So you don't want to stand outside the door that they should pull up to is uh, might be very different than the street address of the building.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I used to complain constantly about that a couple of years ago with uh, with like Uber and Lyft. Is that you know that last fifty feet, either with somebody dropping you off or somebody picking you up, was just a mess. You know, like oh, I got to run down the street. They don't know where I am. If I put in the address, it actually puts it halfway down the block because of that whole door thing. Yep. All of that is a huge mess, and they've gotten much better at it by um, measuring where people get picked up and dropped off. Yeah. Actually. Right and they and say, it, "Hey, leo, you know, nine times out of ten, the person wants to be here, not there, right,
0: and it's especially bad in a city that you're unfamiliar with i was in um uh, I was in Chicago recently, and um i I love chicago but i i not there all the time, uh, and had an Uber driver picking me up and it was just, you know, it had to resort to the phone call, you know, and it's like, I'm here. And it's like, well, I'm here too. And I don't see you. And of course he's around the corner, you know, and, you know, Mm -hmm. we worked it out. It was all, you know, all, all worked out, but you know, it it added four minutes of stress to, to what ordinarily is supposed to be completely stress-free. It's like the whole appeal of these things.
1: Yep, exactly. And so the the tools are a big part of that. You know, obviously there is a um you know, there is a an opportunity for Apple to gather data from phones. To say like, hey, you know, the trips often end right here, right? So maybe this is where the front entrance is. Let's assign that to an editor. Yeah. Um, and and a, an algorithm may do that. That may not be a person that has to say that, right? It's just saying, hey, we've got the door here and it doesn't match where everybody is walks to. Yeah. So what's the what's the variance? And so they assign it to a person an editor. The editor has the tool to do the the access point check. So they go and look at it and they say, "Oh, I see what's going on here." And it's literally as simple as it looks like a you know, vector illustration to yeah. be honest. You know, like, hey, I'm going to drop a point and I'm going to drag to another point and drop another point. So it's like, hey, I'm going to create an access point here, Drop it, drag it out, you know, connect it to yep. the main road so I know it's coming from the main road. And then this is exactly the point where they need to end up. And so that way, when you're navigating to, and then attach it to that address, you know, assign it to that address. And then that way, if I put in that address, no longer am I directed to just a random spot along the street. I'm directed right to the access right. point. Right. You know, whether that's on the road or off the road. In a and there are right.
0: landmarks to help you orient it right? Like you're driving the car mm-hmm. and you see like, Oh, there's an awning, you know, there's a, an awning. Oh, I see that's that it's this restaurant up here with the awning. There it is. Right. Um, all right, let me take a break again and thank our next sponsor. It's our uh, good friends at Eero 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 and, and has a new second generation router and their new beacon. And they allow you to easily build your own wifi system. that works way better than traditional wifi routers. Um, uh, Look, traditional routers have built clunky devices. They have terrible software, and they try to, you know, blanket as big a area as possible with a single range of, of um, Wi Fi. Eero uses mesh a mesh network, and they have their own proprietary true mesh technology. And the gist of it is that you have multiple small devices spread about your home or your office, and they communicate with each other, and each one they they from your device's standpoint, it looks like one single Wi-Fi network, one network name, one password, and your device will just uh, magically connect to the closest one that's giving that part of your home or your office strong power. Uh, their their first-generation product is fantastic um, and really and got all sorts of awards and acclaim. But their second-generation one, they've added a third 5 gigahertz radio. And it's now tri-band and twice as fast as its predecessor, which lets its customers do more simultaneously in every room of their home. It's a really great addition. Um, And just like the original one, it looks identical to the original one or practically identical. It's just a very small Apple-like puck and it's very small, unobtrusive. It'll look good in any room of your house, sits flat on the surface, plugs in with a power adapter, nothing clunky about it. And you can connect the multiple ones over ethernet. So if your home is wired up for ethernet, you can hook each one in to ethernet and they'll communicate to each other that way or wirelessly. So if you don't have an ethernet hookup everywhere in your house, uh, they'll just communicate to each other wirelessly in any combination and it really couldn't be easier to set up and they have a great app for the phone that is how you deal with it and you know set the name of the network see who's using it all sorts of stuff the app has a terrific user interface uh and their new product the beacon is half the size uh but still more powerful than the first generation eero and you simply plug it into a wall socket like a light like a, a like a little uh uh ambient light um a nightlight uh, is the word I'm looking for. And it can just join the network and it's even more unobtrusive because it's just a little tiny thing that you plug into wall sockets, you know, maybe at the top of the stairs or something like that. Uh, really a, an amazing addition to their lineup uh, and a great way to maybe add, you know, just to get one more one more Eero device, like on the top floor of your house or something like that. And it even actually does have an led nightlight that you can turn off if you don't want. Uh, but it uses an ambient light sensor. So it only turns on when it thinks you need it in the dark. Um, uh, so anyway, it's a great product. I'm talking to you right now over an Eero network. I've had a great experience with it. I really, it's regular software updates. It's just, it's just a great, great product that I would, I would recommend even if they weren't sponsoring the show. Um, you get free overnight shipping to the US or Canada by visiting erocom and then select overnight shipping when you order and enter the promo code, the talk show to make that overnight shipping free. So if you're listening to this show, whenever day you're listening to it, you could have your Eero in your hands tomorrow for free shipping wise, at least by using that code the talk show and just going to Eero.com and that's uh, a for the US and Canada, Uh, great product. So why do you think they didn't announce uh, the maps at WWDC?
1: I mean, the answer I got was just to give it more air. Um, I don't know if that's only part of the answer. You know, usually that's the way <laughs> that's the way Apple rolls. You'll get part of the answer, right. but maybe not the whole answer. Um, so, you know, some conjecture about the whole answer could be like it just wasn't ready. Um, it was just too crowded up on the stage. You know, they had too many other things to get to, whatever the case may be. I, I mean, it doesn't make sense, I don't think, to announce something like this during the, the platform's keynote. You know, yeah. like after the fact, right. where it would have more room. Right, it's just not really developer focused, at least right. not yet. Right, um, it would have to be on the main stage, and so maybe they just ran at a time. Um, it was it it was right on an hour and a half or, or two hours, whatever it is that they normally yeah. do. Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, but the answer I got was basically just wanted to give it more air, separate it from the developer news and give it its own sort of moment to like, hey, this is our new project. Here's what we're pushing forward on. Here's what you can look forward to.
0: Yeah, my guess is, and I have no inside info on this, but my guess is simply did, didn't make the cut, you know, that they they probably considered it. It may have even been in the keynote at one point and in the interest of time, um, uh, but well, we can roll this out, you know, later in a month as a s- separate thing. Um, uh, and like, it's not developer focused yet. You know, it's just that the actual, you know, everything developer wise in terms of using map APIs in iOS uh, is unchanged. You just once, you know, this roll as this rolls out, just the maps that users will see will look better and have more information.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they're they have a. Uh... They have an opportunity right now because there's there's you know a beta next week where the Bay Area will come online and people will be able to like play with it and get an idea and then of course um, Northern California later in the year um, when iOS actually launches uh, iOS twelve but I think they have an opportunity to sort of say to, to put it alone and not put it on stage with everything else that's going to be shipping to everybody you know what I mean. Right. Because it technically, while this is shipping to everybody, everybody doesn't live in the Bay. <laughs> right. Everybody doesn't <laughs> live in Northern California, right? Right. And whereas, like everybody can use, you know, this, the the right. new uh, attention features, right? In in, in iOS, the new Apple limit features, everybody could use that. I don't care whether you live in Australia or here or wherever, right? Everybody could use that. Uh, if you launch this map, you're not really launching it to everybody. Yeah. So it's sort of like um, you and I had a little discussion about. Uh, uh, Google's thing. Um, what was it called? Was it duplex. Or Duplex, yeah. No, Duplex. Yeah, I remember it was like, hey, you, you announced Android P, which like every Android user on the planet uh, it, with a compatible phone, so a very small amount actually um, can get this theoretically uh, coming right up, right? Like everybody will have access to it that can have access to it. And then here's duplex, which we don't even know when we're going to ship it or what it is. Right. And putting those in, in right next to one another can create like a false dichotomy in the, in the, consumers mind like yeah. oh this is ready to ship or whatever so maybe that's the case too because it's such a limited area that it's launching in they don't want it right alongside ios features which will ship to everyone
0: yeah i thought this was an interesting quote from eddie uh he said after talking about us some specifics of of the work that they're doing uh we don't think there's anybody doing this level of work that we're doing ads Q, which is a pretty bold statement for the map's app that has been in second place or arguably distant second place for very long time to Google Maps right like that quote Mm -hmm. makes it sound as though he thinks they're doing stuff that Google isn't doing like Mm -hmm. that it's not just about getting Apple Maps on par with Google Maps but that if they're successful at what they're trying to do it could put them ahead which is a really bold statement
1: yeah and that could be referring to some of the things that they're doing with um with 3D point cloud capture, um, and then it could also refer to, of course, you know, future stuff, right? Mm-hmm. That he was unwilling to yet talk about. Right. Um, the 3D point cloud stuff was really the most interesting. So there's there's basically like three new. That's very very vaguely, or or uh, in um, simple terms, there's three types of new data that they're putting into to maps to make it better um, one it's they're they're putting in more and more um, frequent uh, probe data probe data has sort of been present in maps for a while but really not to this level um, the you know, iPhone by probe data I mean those segments of a trip that get sliced up and anonymized, right? So this data would will give people much, hopefully, much more realistic ideas of what traffic is. Um, you know the the sort of implication they felt that they that I got from them was that they feel that they'll do a better job than Waze or just as good, you know, that there's no real reason to even use Waze uh, with this new traffic stuff, uh, which is, you know, I mean, that's that's one way to position it. And I, I think if you're going to think of another one out there um, that's doing this, Waze is certainly the competitor. Um, but then you have, so in addition to probe data, you've also got uh, high-resolution satellite data, Uh, And then high-resolution satellite data, of course, provides them the ability to create foliage and to determine what's a public pool and what's a baseball diamond and a tennis court and to label those. So you're like, hey, meet me on the tennis court, and you can, like, give directions right to the tennis court, that sort of thing. Right. Um, And not just any tennis court, but this tennis court, you know, the one on the left, right? Right. Right. so they got all that. Then they have the cars, right? So the the or vans. So they have got the van. This van's trundling around. It's capturing lidar information, which is the same stuff that self driving cars use to see the world around them. Uh, basically, what they do, lidar does is it, it it's a camera that whips around and takes a many 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 quote unquote pictures a second, um, and creates a sort of uh, map of the world in three D based on points so it says hey i just go receive to bounce back from this i'm going to assign a point at that distance in space from me right? right um and then the same thing all the way around many many millions of times and then you end up with a scenario where you got um you know oh hey that's a sign it's yes it's made up of uh, you know ten thousand contiguous points, but I know it's a flat sign because they're all at the same distance away, um, and so on and so forth for buildings and everything else Sort of, sort of like the way that.
0: do you think it's fair to say it's sort of like the way that in visual effects like when you see like Andy Circus performing one of his you know roles and he's wearing a motion capture suit with dots on it, so that when they create the character, the dots can be used to sort of recreate a, th- a three dimensional it, it, you know, yeah,
1: sort of. It's it's that, but in reverse. Right. Like, what right, if the right. what if the camera was making the dots right. rather than the dots <laughs> right. being painted on it? Right. You because
0: know? because the world hasn't been conveniently painted with. <laughs> The reflective dots to help <laughs> to help uh, the right. lidar and and self. Ironically, cars.
1: they actually can tell the difference between retroreflective surfaces and not, which is one of the ways that they determine what's a sign, yeah. like a stop sign or a road sign, because they're all reflective, right? right. Um, and so that it's one of the thing, one of the situations right. or, or cues, visual cues right. that they use. But exactly right, you, right. you know, you got you don't have the dots, you got to make them yourself. You got to make this cloud yourself, and if you make a high resolution enough cloud. You know, I've seen the data, the raw data coming out of that, and it look. I mean, it looks like a gray, a flat, you know, gray, untextured 3D model of the yeah. world, right? Yeah. Like you would get early on in the process of creating a a 3D movie or animation or anything like that. Right. Um, which like provides what, it's like, know, like what Daredevil.
0: It's like what Daredevil sees.
1: Yes, exactly. Right. That's right. Um, you're, you're getting this, this vision of the world that isn't textured with, you know, textures or color, but it's certainly, uh, you know, all of the distances, everything is away from you. You know, the shape of it, um, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um. (laughs) And then, uh, well, I'll, I'll finish this. We could talk about it. I'm interested to hear what you think of this, but the thing that they do is they, they combine, um a the that three data, that point data, they combine it with high resolution images taken from the car at a very near range. They're essentially canon lenses. I don't know what's under the hood, probably probably canon bodies, but they're like fish eyes and you know various focal lengths of lenses, so they get a nice overlap all the way around the car as eight cameras, so they take these high resolution images and then they use those. These are to create like panels that the people can view, you know, similar to what a street view would be, but not obviously exposed to the consumer. They're, they did not announce street view and would not tell me if they were going to do it. Um, but. If the editors can see those panos, right? When they go to say, like, right. oh, was this a uh, street sign, say, thirty-five or forty, or you know, is this address really on that building? They can look at the pano and pan around it and see exactly what the car saw right there, so they can make an edit call, right? And it's attached to all of the data, anonymized, of course, so you know, license places and fates or uh, faces are are blurred out. Right. But the other thing that they use this high resolution camera data for, which I found freaking amazing, and I don't, I'm of I feel like I should know if Google does this or not, but I don't believe I do. And I probably should look it up so that somebody doesn't call me on it. But it's basically called an orthogonal uh, recreation or reproduction. And so, what it does is it takes the 3D world that it's created with that point cloud and then takes the high resolution, very high resolution images, because it shoots them in vertical too, some hmm. of them, so that they're full, you know, full res, uh, all the way down the street. And it maps those images onto the 3D objects to create texture. Hmm. So when, like, an editor is looking at a, a street from the top and trying to decide, now, does this street connect? Underneath these tree canopy, I can't tell, right? Like they're looking at a satellite and they don't know whether the street stops or whether it goes all the way through to the other side where, you know, the trees are right. covering everything in between. They have no idea, no way to tell, right? And so either, yeah, they can, you know, go into the pano and try and look through the trees or whatever, or they can they could turn on the ortho reconstruction which is basically a full 3D scene texture with color and picture and everything incredibly high res much higher res than satellite would be because of the distance right, right? um and it's mapped all onto the 3D object and the, they could just look right under the trees they just, the trees disappear because they the the car could see underneath the trees so now the editor can right it's like you know having x-ray vision from street level and you know, powerful telescopic vision from above combined together. It's pretty wild. Um, And and I'm not, you know, saying they will or won't or whatever, but you could easily see this being used as a 3D reconstruction of the street at street level, much like flyover is used at the the flyover level.
0: Right. Um, So when... (sighs) To me, the big question, this sounds great. The examples they showed before and after of, you know, the Bay Area look terrific. Um, The big question, and, you know, they didn't want to give you any, they didn't give you any timeline other than the Bay Area Northern California in the fall. But how long do you think this is going to take to roll out everywhere? I mean, because it makes a big difference in the is yeah. this is this something to be excited about or not? You know, if this is <laughs> right,
1: absolutely. Especially for people that live overseas, they're like, yeah, that's fine, but <laughs> like, look, you know, I I don't even have transport, yet, yeah. you know, or whatever. Right. Um, but I, you know, I don't know. You know, obviously they didn't give me any right. exact timelines; It wouldn't commit. Um, the the one thing that I can say is that they have teams all over the world, so that right. Apple Maps teams are not local only. Right. They are all over the world. They do have cars running um, in many states already and overseas. So they've got the 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 uh, sort of recording mechanisms up and running. As far as to how long it takes to parse them and put them in, I don't know. Right. But I can say this. like It didn't take them four years to put this into the map, right? right. It took them four years to build the processes and tools. So... My guess is, is that they get Northern California up and running, they get Southern California up and running, and then everything else starts to iterate fairly quickly from there right. because it's basically a matter of you know, employing more and more trained editors with good tools to make sure that the information is accurate and then putting more vans on the ground. And these are just vans, man, with a Mac Pro in the back. They're not... You know, yeah, the stuff on top is pricey, but it's not beyond Apple's reach. Right. This is not a matter of lack of
0: resources at all. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the question I think 10,000 <laughs> Apple podcasters have asked many times on various shows is, you know, <laughs> uh, if maps are important and Apple Maps are behind and Apple is literally the richest, the wealthiest company in the world. How can they not spend? You know, can't they? Isn't there a way that they can spend their way out of this? And the just I get from the article is the they're trying, and it's just it takes time. And so, like, um, you know, all the money that they're putting into the vans that drive around—it's we haven't seen the results of it until today. That's we now have an answer of what what in the world are they doing with all these vans? <laughs> because I don't see anything in my app that came right. from them. Right, right, and the answer is we've been doing. You know, it takes time. Even if you have the money, there's no mm-hmm. way to, um, you know. And yeah, it sounds well, like, to me, look, it sounds to me yeah, like they're you could, spending uh, as much ahead, as you yeah. as we would hope Apple would spend on this.
1: Right. I mean, <laughs> you if you have all the resources in the world, your limitations cease to become the resources. Right? right. the The bottlenecks are elsewhere. And I think when people have the discussion about why can't Apple spend more money at this or that, it's very similar to people. Um, you know, complaining to a developer, but like, why aren't you fixing this when there are these things? You got these things going on. And you're like, well, yeah, but we have, you know, there's 60 developers and they're all working on different things all at once. Just because we're, we're updating this feature doesn't mean we're not working on that feature, right? And I think that's like the constant refrain from somebody outside looking at an organization like Apple. They're like, why are you wasting your time on X when you could be working on Y? It's like, well, they are working on Y. Yeah. Like they're, they are investing in Y. It's just you're not seeing the results of Y for one reason or another. And yes, that reason could be dysfunction. Right? It could be like uh, poor management or lack of direction or whatever the case may be. Um- you know i 've heard many tales of that over the years with Apple Maps, just how you know it 's gone from one person to another, and you know someone takes responsibility, other people do um, you have the the many librarians you know scenario where somebody comes in and decides to change it all, and you know then you have to kind of reset all of that i've heard all of those tales, right, just like in many other co- large companies. you get some dysfunction sometimes, but sometimes it no matter how much money you throw at it, the bottlenecks exist outside of the realm of money to solve, and it just takes the other right. limited resource, which
0: is time. All right. Um, I think that wraps up the maps discussion. Any other points on maps you want to make? Did you, where'd you get uh, to sit? No, you, got to, the, you got to ride around in one of the vans. Where Where did you get to sit?
1: Yeah. Uh, shotgun. <laughs> yeah, so where where the operator would be right. to like tell the... Because I guess one person is just supposed to focus on... Right driving right <laughs> and the other person's like okay go left here or go right, right there and yeah. you know oh let's turn let's circle around this parking lot because we got to get the inside of it right. or whatever the case yeah, yeah. very fun yeah uh-huh. pretty utilitarian vans though i don't know if i'd want to do it for a living
0: <laughs> i think it takes <laughs> a certain kind of personality you know
1: <laughs> yeah it's, it's probably relaxing i mean you know you get you've got your your job there's your little parcel of land to cover and go
0: at it i don't know if i'd want to do it all the time for sure for a living well i'm glad that someone's doing it though um yeah well you you can kind of see though that that why some of the companies the companies that have these vans doing the mapping work also happen to be the companies that are either rumored or known to be working on autonomous vehicles
1: yeah i mean it makes a hell of a lot of sense right you're driving all the streets you might as well gather the data um i mean i've seen autonomous data being gathered and it doesn't look a whole lot different, let's put it that way, right. you know, and obviously they they're not talking about it and all of that, but it, the autonomous data is gathered in much the same way to give those cars and those systems a picture of the
0: world well um, and and the yeah. other way around where those cars will, could collect the data that would be continuously updating the the map right like right let's just say that in theory that there is an apple car that comes out five years from now or 10 years from now and it's an autonomous self-driving vehicle and therefore is using lidar and other technologies to see the world around it that data could be used in the same way that they're using iphones now to collect data about the world obviously the data collected by those cars would help make the maps better and it needs the cars need the maps to do what they're supposed to do you know it's like a, a, a virtuous circle
1: Exactly. And and that's one of the reasons, you know, that's one of the things Tesla has stated about its cars is right. that it's been getting they've been gathering data on the road and right. they've got that network effect going on. Right. Sure. It,
0: it's helpful for a company that wants to make autonomous cars to have maps and it's helpful for a company that has maps to have their own autonomous cars.
1: Yep. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and then the one other thing, like from the maps thing, just to, just to touch on the last thing, is that um, just so everybody knows, <laughs> I mean, I mentioned it but in the article, but just so everybody knows, I did ask them about the whole AR directions thing, <laughs> you know, and they, they were just not mm. forthcoming at all, which is totally understandable if they don't want to talk about it yet. But, like, all of the data that they're gathering, all of the stuff that they're doing, absolutely, 100%, completely possible that they could position an arrow in mid-air. You know, for somebody to look at. But also, in my opinion, completely 100% impractical to do for a phone. Like, who gives a crap? Like, you know, I don't want to hold my phone up in midair for more than a second, much less to follow an arrow.
0: You know? Well, I wouldn't want to do it for a long time, but think about like walking around an unfamiliar city. And and you Mm -hmm. get maps now and you've long had the ability to hit the one there's a button in the maps app while you're getting walking directions that sort of changes from always putting north at the top to to orienting the map in the direction you're going. Right. Right. Uh And that is that is a a very early days version of AR. You know, the fact that the map can automatically rotate POV, right. Right. To put your current walking direction at the top of the map whether it's north south east or west is you know poor man's ar whereas having that button use the camera and just just quickly tell me like am i going the right way you know like sometimes you're in a city and there you say such and such street and you can't tell which way the numbers go And so you just take a guess and start going left and it takes, you know, takes a while to figure out like, oh, nope, you should have gone right. You got to backtrack. If you had a little camera you could point around at the world and it would just quick put an arrow like here this way, it would be great. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you wouldn't, you know, again, you wouldn't walk around New York City for 15 minutes with your phone in front of your hand. But you just you could maybe just quick drop into that view, uh, you know, just to make sure you're going the right way on on, you know, Broadway.
1: Yeah, I I'd get it. Absolutely. And if you get there, it's like an arrow pointing at the door. Like there's a lot of cool right, right. opportunities for sure right. on the phone. But I think I think that the the major opportunities won't come until we have goggles. Right. You know. So or, a heads-up view of some
0: sort. Right. Some sort of heads-up view, which could be yeah. the dashboard of a you know, the, the windshield oh, of yeah. a car. Oh,
1: hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Built in HUD in a car. Right. You you got it. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Um All right. I have a couple more things I want to talk about, but uh why don't I take a break and thank our third and final sponsor of the show. Uh, hello pillow, H U L L O. Uh, have you ever tried a buckwheat pillow? They are totally different than the fluffy soft pillows that most of us are used to. It's similar to a beanbag, very heavy too, compared to a regular pillow. And I really mean it because we've had, we've had them for years here in the, uh, daring fireball world headquarters. Um, very similar to a bean bag and it allows the pillow to adjust its shape and thickness. It supports your head and neck, how you want it to, unlike a traditional squishy soft pillow. Uh, if you're the sort of person who always uses two pillows because one pillow is not enough, you are probably going to be very surprised if you try a hello pillow, how you don't need two pillows anymore because it does the thing that you were trying to use two pillows to do. One hello pillow does by itself by having this sort of firmer, um, structure and it, it also stays cool and dry compared to pillows that are filled with feathers or foam or whatever else. Um most pillows absorb and retain body heat and moisture making your pillow feel warm and humid. Buckwheat tends to breathe better because there's air between the individual buckwheats in the pillow. No more um no more flipping. You don't have to flip to get to the cool side of the pillow in the middle of the night. The p- pillow stays cool on one side. Uh we've had them for years. Uh, everybody in the house, all three of us use and like them. My wife and son in particular, uh, truly love them and, and actually get irritated when we travel and they have to use regular pillows. Uh, uh, they're, they're not the sort of thing that you could take with you. It's, they are sort of heavy compared to a regular pillow. Uh, but if you could, they would, uh, that's how much they like them more than regular traditional pillows. Um, and I know a lot of people who, they've been sponsoring the show for years, and I know that there are a lot of readers who've had them. And I'll tell you, you take it out at first, and uh, it does seem so different than a traditional pillow. You're like, I don't know about this. But I'll tell you, it it's really different. And um, that this is the thing. It's not like they invented this. People have been sleeping on buckwheat pillows for centuries. They've been used in Japan extensively and remain popular to this day there. Uh, so it 's really sort of uh, Eastern Western culture difference that we 've had these fluffy you know feather filled type pillows uh, and haven 't had these, but it really is a more natural way to sleep and if you 're at all dissatisfied with your current uh, pillow situation, I really recommend hello give you know give them a try and they 're made right here in the USA with quality construction and materials and certified organic cotton case that is cut and sewn for durability. And the buckwheat is grown and milled in the United States. Like I said, I don't know how many years it's been since we've had them, but like my wife is still on the first one they sent us. And it seems, I, I don't think it seems any different than the day that we started with it. Uh, so here's the deal that you can get for as a listener of this show, sleep on this pillow for 60 nights, 60 nights. And if hello is not for you, just send it back and they will give you a full refund. So you cannot lose. Go to hellopillowcom pillow.com slash talk show. HelloPillow.com slash talk show. And if you try more than one pillow, you get a discount of up to 20 bucks per pillow, depending on the size. Fast free shipping on every order, and 1% of all profits are donated to the Nature Conservancy. My thanks to HelloPillow. HelloPillow.com slash talk show. Uh, two things I want to talk about I want to talk about duplex and I want to talk about the MacBook keyboard repair program duplex uh, the news this week is that Google did exactly what I had been saying I wished and don't understand they what they why they didn't do uh, in early May when they announced duplex which is actually allow journalists to uh, not just listen to live calls but actually participate in them so what they did is they set up they actually rented out bought out for the day some restaurants in san francisco and new york different groups of journalists um and had them uh you know had the journalist play receptionist to uh answer the phone and and talk to google duplex um and uh, yeah to a t I, i don't know if i read every one of them but i read a lot of them uh to a t uh People said that it sounds you know, the the ums and ahs and those those uh things that, that that the duplex voice was doing uh in the recording Google played at IO. That that's it sounds just as eerily human like in real life. Although Google did not release any of the actual recordings of the journalist phone calls. Your thoughts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah I mean like you, you, it is what it is you know what I mean it's like a, it always cracks me up with these companies I, I, I love how much money they have you know to, to like create right. these these publicity scenarios like hey we're we're just here in this casual Thai restaurant um, you know I, I think it's fine to to kind of go the next step and say look it does work and here's how it is and put you on the phone they should have done that from the beginning but if, you know maybe they weren't ready and all that fine you know or maybe they didn't anticipate the, the fervor you know the people were under. Um, I mean, the impressions that Brian Heater went to ours. Uh, one of our writers, uh, he went to the one in New York. Um, he's been covering uh, Duplex in this whole issue since uh, the beginning, and so. He, he was the ideal person to kind of judge like, Oh, okay. Does this feel the same and all of that? And he said, it definitely feels like it works. Um, you know, the, the disambiguations that they put in, uh, definitely make it feel more human. But he pointed out two things rightfully, which is one, you can't say that you're not trying to trick people. Um, and that you, you know, that you also want them to believe it's more human. Right.
0: Like those two things are incompatible. Yeah. You know, I, I, I thought the same thing. Uh, and I think that it gets to where, and so many people. When I raised uh, some questions about the way that this was demoed at I/O, and said that uh, I guess I shouldn't have phrased it the way that I did, and I said what they've done just by playing a record, all, only playing a recording of two ostensible, quote unquote, actual calls. That was that was the words that they used. By only playing recordings and not letting anybody see it live um, is indistinguishable from, you know, like a fake. And that did what some people jumped on that and took it as me saying that I think this is fake. Or completely fake, you know, that there were actors that they were they weren't even it wasn't even a computer generated voice or something like that, and that wasn't what I was saying at all, you know. And I thought I emphasized that by saying that look, if anybody in the world, any company or institution, uh, you know, in today's world, it's companies like Google and and. Amazon that do things like this. Maybe, you know, a generation ago, it was research labs, you know, like at MIT or or Bell Labs or something like that. But if there's any institution that today could could make a voice that sounds like that, it would be Google. I think that would be the mm-hmm. you know, that they would have the best odds in Vegas. Um, but it's it was just such a curious and bizarre way to roll it out because it was it there was no nobody was shown any evidence of it. And I think in hindsight, I think it's clear it's not that it was It clearly wasn't a fraud clearly they have this vocal technology right and it is amazing it is a leap forward to be able to have a computer generated voice that can fool people into thinking it's real even if they're it, it, not just like hey you you're just the 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 person who answers the phone at the restaurant and you know, you answer the, you answer, you know, 20, 30, 40, maybe a hundred calls every day because you know, that's how many reservations you get. So you, you, even if you're not thinking, Hey, I, you know, this might be, uh, you know, an AI and you just happen to not even notice and you have the phone call, go come and go. And without even giving it a second thought that you might've been talking to an AI bot, um, even if you're thinking about it, like the journalists who were invited to this demo, like uh, Lauren Good from Wired uh, mm-hmm. successfully tripped it up by asking about uh, – I thought her anecdote was terrific. And it, it comes from the fact that she actually in college had a job answering the phone at like a bar or restaurant or something. Sure. And she just asked if anybody needed – if there are any kids and do they need high chairs – And does anybody have any food allergies or something like that? And those things Mm -hmm. tripped it up and a human operator had to jump in and she thought that she could tell a second voice came on, but she thought maybe they switched to a different, you know, it, mm-hmm. She wasn't sure that it. Had, she didn't think it had switched to a human. She just thought it was another duplex, right. you know, and I thought that was really telling about the compellingness of the voice. But, you know, Brian heater is exactly right. You, you can't say that you've built this thing that is indistinguishable from a human and then say that we're not trying to. <laughs> and and they even said that we we took it in this direction because as we tested it, we were we got fewer hang ups this way. <laughs> Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No kidding. If they think it's a human, right. they won't hang up as much. No. That and I'm sound not, right.
0: And I'm not saying this in the sense of, oh, those bastards at Google, you know, are no, tricking yeah. people. It I'm is saying
1: what it is. <laughs>
0: I'm just saying that, and that they haven't. They, ha- they When they announced this in early May, they clearly had not thought this through as a product. Right. What they had was an amazing technology. And I think they wanted to demo this amazing technology because that's what that's something Google really likes to do is really show off technology, and they just sort of dot uh, yada yada yada. We'll, we'll you know we'll 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 turn it into a product in Google Assistant or something like that without having really thought it through. And it, even at this point with the demo that these people had, it still isn't actually hooked up to Google Assistant. Like so, the way right. that the call starts even in these the canned demos, was not by somebody talking into their phone and saying, oh, okay, Google, make me a reservation at this restaurant at 7 or 8 o'clock on Saturday for a table for four. And then mm-hmm. and then letting go of the phone and at some, you know, five, six seconds later, have the phone ring it, at the place. It, it didn't work like that at all. And then at the end of the call, they didn't show them like an appointment showing up in their Google calendar with the reservation, right? They only have the part of the thing where there's like a guy at a computer who types things, a Google, Mm -hmm. you know, engineer who initiates the call. Like it's not a full system yet. Right. And at at this point they say that four out of five calls that they do to these restaurants, uh, success, you know, successfully get the right reservation. Um, and that one out of five requires a, a human operator to jump in, and like there's like a quick transcript, so like the human operator apparently can see a transcript of what's gone on so far, what the what the request was, and then take over. Mm-hmm. That right. that's amazing. Four out of five is absolutely amazing, but yeah. it's absolutely. And
1: the fact that they have provided the dashboard for the in person, right. That means they're productizing it.
0: But it's absolutely untenable at at, at anywhere near that rate. For Google to actually roll this out to everybody, mm-hmm. it's absolutely untenable. They would need to have an army, an absolute army of humans, yeah. even at a ninety percent success rate, to to pop in. Like they, this has now to be, is it the Google operator that
1: takes over though, or is it the person at the restaurant?
0: No, it's a Google operator. In other words, okay. like if you it, it, got it. it. It's a Google employee. Google says that they have, you know, but it, nothing Google does can ever requires an army of humans. Or maybe no. other, you know, it just doesn't scale. Yeah.
1: They would consider that a failure,
0: right? Like you can do it if it's a paid service. Um, Virtue, remember Virtue the the. The phone company that sold five or six yeah. thousand dollar phones. They gold, blackberries yeah, or whatever. Right. And they'd have like leather backing and and they were very bling. Uh mm-hmm. it, it, Nokia they, they they originally ran on Nokia's stuff and That's Nokia right. was an investor in the company. And at some point while they tried to hang on in relevance, you know, they they switched to Android. Um but they had a, they had a button on the phone. And, and, you know, you, you paid five or six thousand dollars for a phone and it was just running. It was technically no better than like a twenty five dollar Nokia phone. Um, but part of what you got was this bling on the, you know, the actual phone itself was very blingy and, you know, had some premium materials like gold and, and leather and stuff like that. But one of the things you also got was access to a concierge service where you just hit a button. And it would just immediately connect you to a virtue concierge. And you would say, make me a reservation at, uh, you know, uh, whatever restaurant, uh, you know, on Saturday at seven, uh, table for five. And they'd say, okay, you know, Mr. Panzerino. And, you know, like when a reservation comes through, they would, I don't know if they sent you a text or what, but there'd be some kind of thing that would let it go. But it was a human on the other end. And they obviously uh-huh. they could afford to do that because they were selling five thousand dollar phones, and they were very the phones you know.
1: cost like thirty dollars, right? <laughs> Plus some gold, and
0: <laughs> you know it was not a you know there weren't millions of virtue users. There were I don't know I guess mm-hmm. thousands. You know Google right. can't afford to have something like that uh, for even ten percent of these calls because it's a free service. Google Assistant yeah. is completely free.
1: I think it's look. I think the whole thing is cool. The concept is cool. As a person who likes technology and you know is whose job is ostensibly to absorb bleeding edge technology and kind of like figure out what it means and all that i think it's super cool and a great technical achievement and all of that certainly not scalable at that error rate but i think they could get that error rate down for sure which means it's just not launchable yet but it probably will be at
0: some point i'm not i'm not the sure that time, i, I don't, on that I'm not sure I. Well, bet
1: you know, on that. Well, I I would I would. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll take that bet, I guess, you know what I mean? Um, but I I get why you say maybe not. You know, maybe they'll never be able to get it there because there's just too many edge cases or whatever, but I just have I just know a lot about or a little about a lot uh, of uh machine learning stuff and I think they could get it there. Cuz they could train it on, they could probably buy banks of recorded conversations from um like call centers that say you're being you're now being recorded right and they could train on that i think they could do it but regardless of that you have this sort of secondary thing about it which is should we you know like should we be talking to robots all the time and you know is that really going to help um i don't know i just think that this really falls square into that pool of of you know products or or startups or features or whatever which is just really about making it so that you know uh Man boy engineers don't have to talk to people. Right. Like it's really, you know, <laughs> like if there's a whole class of there's a whole category of startups that fall into this category into this, you know, arena. And some of them have broken out of that and have genuinely become useful to many, many people for a variety of reasons. You know, we just ordered uh Uber Eats because it's like the, the baby's asleep and I'm the only parent home, right? right? So, okay, let we'll order Uber Eats. Totally useful. Originated with people going like, you know, food delivery services some engineer going why do i have to get up and go to the thing and stop coding <laughs> right, like right. my mom stopped bringing me food now so i should invent this company that somebody else bring me the food right? right and and i think there's there are there are plenty of opportunities for for those things to break out and become something useful but there's also plenty of them that feel like cop-outs right. you know they feel like we're we're sort of Checking out of uh, societal the societal arrangement because we can we have the privilege to do so we can pay for it or we have the technology we have the expensive phone that has the service or you know whatever right um, and so I think there's that aspect of it that I'm a little bit leery on. Well, the um, the other thing that
0: makes me wonder you know. if this is ever going to be a product is that Google is saying that it's going to be opt in for the businesses and that so if you and I open up a restaurant and we don't have we do take reservations but we don't take open table. Uh, we would have to uh, sign up for to be like a duplex ready restaurant because of these privacy implications that people raised i'm not so sure that's necessary i like i wrote on daring fireball like i'm not convinced that there is it's a problem whether this thing identifies itself as a robot or not because you're you're not getting like my analogy was like is that there's no loss, right? It, these phone calls, because it's a robot, don't cost the restaurant any more time. They don't bother. They they go well enough when they go well that it's not – the person answering the phone hasn't been – hasn't lost anything compared to if I personally just called them and made the same reservation, So Mm -hmm. what's the argument against having a robot do it, whether the person on the other end knows it's a robot or not? Compare and contrast to, say, poker playing bots that go online and, you know, you think you're playing against a bunch of other humans. But in fact, you know, one of the opponents is a computer and is taking your money. (laughs) <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's that's where you, you, you thinking that it's a human but it's actually a bot is deceptive and wrong, morally mm-hmm. and eth- ethically wrong. I'm not so sure that this yeah. is. But if they really are going to keep it opt-in, I, I don't know how that's ever going to take off. I mean, I guess they could just make a, launch a big publicity compa- campaign to get restaurants to do it. But I don't know. And I'm also not convinced.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're pretty adept, though, at selling people into this channel. I mean, they do have... They do have sales teams, you know, that work on the programmatic side and that sort of thing. So I think they can get there. But.
0: I, I just think that if you're gonna have a computer, talk to a restaurant and make a reservation, like it doing it as an AI that talks on a phone call is such a sort of Rube Goldbergian difference compared to like the way that they even say that if if the restaurant has takes open table they'll just use open table apis and do it that way mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense to build computers that talk to each other by by voice
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly right yeah we just we just see an API for everything and then you know everybody has a personal API it interacts with all of the global apis that we never have to talk to anybody
0: right like for cinematic regions R 2 d 2 and c3po you know, talked and beeped <laughs> beep to each other, <laughs> right. but if, it, it doesn't make any sense that they wouldn't communicate completely, uh, like by whatever the Star Wars equivalent of Wi Fi. Yeah, yeah, they would train yeah,
1: exactly, or or even if they use audible, audible signals, it would right. be some sort of like rapid fire screech of ones and zeros that yeah. like happened in a in a blink of an eye. You yeah. know.
0: While I mention that, let me just add this: I've been meaning to mention this on the show for a while. I think one of the most prescient things that George Lucas little details that George Lucas came up with. Uh, Is the fact that when in the first Star Wars movie, when they go into the cantina and the bartender says to Luke, We don't serve their kind here, very angrily. You know, in other words, droids aren't welcome. (laughs) It's sort of like an anti droid uh, bigotry in the Star Wars universe. And -hmm. I think that was so prescient because as the viewer of the movie, all of us are thinking, a human or uh, adult children alike are thinking, Oh my God, these robots seem so realistic right C3PO it was like amazing it was like he walks like a robot looks like a robot wouldn't it be cool to have a robot like that that can just talk to you like this like we're thinking man that's cool but in their universe they're sort of resented by at least some people you know and like the the sort of degenerates who would go to the cantina and i think we're yeah, seeing Yeah as
1: a kid you're going oh that's so cool right. and as an adult you're like oh robots what an, what assholes
0: <laughs> yeah and that's what we're sort of seeing that with people's reaction to things like duplex um all right, enough on that. Last thing. I don't have a lot to say about this, but last but not least, Apple has announced, a finally, a MacBook keyboard repair program uh, launched around 5 o'clock last Friday.
1: <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> it must have just been when it was ready, John. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. It just was, that just must have been when they were ready to announce it.
0: I'm sure that's exactly why. <laughs> the moment they were ready, they, they launched the news.
1: The moment. Very moment. <laughs>
0: I think it was a little bit before five. I think it was. I think it was around like three Eastern or something like that on a, on a f- Friday in late June. Um, but more or less, and it is funny because uh, it's like, all right, here's the affected uh, devices, and it's effectively it's every single. It is it not even effectively. It's just literally every single MacBook or MacBook Pro that's come out since the new keyboard design came out. Right. It's like if you've got a MacBook with the butterfly key switches, it's eligible for this repair program. Yeah. And uh if you get a stuck key or uh, you know, any of these other problems people are running into with this, it is eligible for a free repair. They'll either repair the to replace the whole keyboard or replace a single key if that's what they can do. And if you've already paid for such a repair and think it should have been covered, there's some kind of uh thing you can go through to to get your money back. Mm-hmm. um meanwhile they, every single macbook you can continue to buy is either an older model <laughs> or if it's a top-of-the-line new model it still has this exact same keyboard mm-hmm. which is i think the first time i can ever recall the few times that apple has admitted to hardware problems with a device that it, that they're still they don't have a replacement ready yet which is kind of awkward
1: yeah, it's super awkward. I mean, it, it, they're you know, they shouldn't have been flat-footed on that front uh, simply because they they've known about the issues for a long time. You know, um, even though Apple maintains that it's a very small amount right. of devices, right? Uh, it's enough. <laughs> right. It's enough for sure. Uh, so you know, yeah, one of two things going on. Either they're getting ready to announce new MacBooks, which could totally happen. Um, and they'll be, it'll happen really quickly here and then you will have options and they'll just quietly deprecate all those current ones or I don't know what, um, or they, yeah, they're going to be stuck with these for a while. So either, 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 or on those on that front.
0: Yeah. This is completely and utterly unsubstantiated, but I'll pass it along. That's what podcasts are for. This is the sort of thing I would never write on Daring Fireball, but I'll say on the show is I got an email from somebody after this was announced who I don't know and who admitted, um that he he doesn't know this firsthand he knows a friend who knows a guy (laughs) at apple Um,
1: my uncle works at nintendo
0: yeah um but what he said and again he even said i don't know you can't you know he, he knows me well you know he's a reader of the site but he said what 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 he heard from somebody was that apple we've got serious you know at some point you know Last, you know, at some point in the last year or so, got serious about thoroughly investigating this. Like, okay, something is up. What is going wrong? And that they looked into it, and that there's a certain part of the butterfly mechanism that's made of a metal alloy. And that this metal alloy is, uh, as they were producing them, was not up to their specific, up to the proper specifications for resistance to bending. And that was prone to getting slightly bent, just slightly, because there's obviously no, no room with the low key travel for a large right. bend. But that once bent, even slightly, made that particular key more likely to get stuck if, like, a piece of dust or something went in there. That it was, and that they they looked into it, rectified it, and have since switched to a different metal alloy that may may not even look different in terms of you know what it would look like if you pop the key off but that it's much more rigid and less prone to bending and that the more recent your macbook or macbook pro is the more likely it is that it has these this different alloy in the butterfly switches and will be less likely to to suffer this uh i can't prove that i there's no way apple is ever going to say whether that's true or not um I think the only way we could ever find out if or even suspect whether something like that is true or not is whether we start to see a decrease in the number of people with, you know, if if anecdotally we observe that the more recent your keyboard is, the less likely it is to to break down.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, we started seeing reports of it. I think like, you know. Very soon after they were announced, or, or very soon after they were launched, like a couple of people, and then it just started it started cresting like early last year, yeah. and then um, you know there had been plenty of like you know talk about it, and you know medium posts from independent parties about it, and you know certainly folks like Marco were talking about it, other, po- other people were talking about it, and Casey you Johnston. Know, then- Casey Johnston. Yeah, then Casey, Casey wrote an article in October of last right. year, whenever it was, and that sort of put a pin in the topic yeah. of like, you know, hey, here's here's a, a, a on-the-record a site writing about it, you know, and then she kept hammering at it. And so I think there was a, a long time before she codified it, there was like buzz, but she really crystallized it well and then kept hammering on it. Yeah. Um, so it, it was it got embarrassing, <laughs> you know. I think it gets embarrassing at some point for people – Who are ostensibly known for building some of the best hardware in the world. I love have something that's just so, so terrible.
0: Yeah, I, I really did laugh out loud, um, at Casey Johnston's take after this repair program was, uh, um, announced where she wrote, um, Apple did not immediately return a request from this reporter for comments on whether repairs may now be done on-site at stores to shorten the time computers must be without their computers, whether the keyboard design has changed such that a repair may eliminate the problem rather than prop up a faulty design, or whether Apple anticipates releasing updated hardware that is not so prone to failure at any point in the future. Perhaps their keyboards, too, are broken. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> i'm a i'm a big kz fan i have been for a long time uh, just got a she's sharp
0: that was a, just an amazing sentence perhaps their keyboards too are broken um uh, <laughs> i don't know it's a weird thing and i'll tell you it's one of those things as you know the guy who writes daring fireball and does the show i get you know i've all for years and many uh, you know 10 years more I, I get email from people you know readers and they'll just say something like you know hey my kid's going to college in august uh and I, you know, was going to get her a new MacBook, but what should I do? Should I wait? You know, you know, I'm worried about this keyboard thing. You know, we're hoping to get her a keyboard. You know, we're hoping to get her a MacBook that'll take her through college for four years. Right. Um I, And I, I often don't know what to say. I don't know how to make recommendations for people. You know, like you know, if people say like, "Hey, should we you know get a MacBook Pro or get the regular MacBook?" You know. Uh, you know, I don't know how to answer that sometimes, um, mm-hmm. but in this particular case, I have no idea what to say, you know, because you might need a computer, but I have no idea like, you know, the timing on new MacBooks coming out is actually pretty unfortunate because June would have been in time for back to school if they had had them to announce at WWDC and September is obviously too late because the kids all start school in late August. So I, I don't know what to say to people. It is, it's a tough time. I wonder, as this gains publicity, whether we'll start seeing it reflected in the sales numbers of Macs. I, like, how many people out there are holding off on a new MacBook?
1: Honestly, probably not much. I don't think so. It doesn't seem like, <laughs> like it's, it's so far. It's a tempest in a teapot, almost right. always with this stuff. Right. Like, you know, you look at the video card stuff, yep. and like that. You know, there's a variety of debacles that Macs have had over the years, and right. I just don't think that most people really give a crap. Especially right. not the people that are buying at scale.
0: You right. know? And as much as we, meaning like me and you and everybody who's listening to this show, we think that this is like a major issue and controversy. It It is in our little mm. you know, tech meme universe. Yeah.
1: And I'm not saying it's not valid. 100% right. valid. Right. right. But that's not the point at all. It's just right. a matter of like there's yeah. an external assessment you can do on whether right. or not it's going to have a material impact. Yeah. I don't think so, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's it's like – so you, The when I said there's just two options, there's really three options. The two – a and 2B is they introduced new MacBook hardware now because they were ready to replace this keyboard or have known about it for a long enough time to have right. gotten that done, gotten whatever major fix done that needs to be done so you don't have to replace the entire top of your MacBook uh, to fix a key, uh, or or they, they weren't ready, and so whatever speed bump that they were going to introduce is delayed, Yeah. right? And so, if that is, you might see some material impact because of the school buying season, All right? Right, um, and you know the buying season for people going back, kids go back to school, the school year starting back up again, things like that. But most of that stuff happens early, so early in the year, I just don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know if we'll see anything there.
0: All right, and, and what my last point on this, and uh, Marco Arment made it very, very succinctly on A- the most recent episode of ATP, um, but I. I don't like this four year limit on the replacement thing. Uh, and I'm mm-hmm. literally talking to you on a uh, Retina 13 inch MacBook Pro f- mid 2014 that I think I bought, right. uh, I don't know, like September, October of 2014. So it's nearly four years old and is it's going, it is fantastic. It's actually my favorite Apple laptop I've ever owned. And not just like by you know grading on a you know grading on a curve it, it, by the the technologies available in the day you know I'm not comparing a twenty year old PowerBook screen to this Retina screen I'm just saying in terms of how much I liked the book compared to the, a, a a notebook compared to what else was on the market or what I expected to get out of it it's it's the greatest MacBook I've ever owned I love it and it is just rock solid. I have no intention to replace it soon, and it's four years old. Uh, I, I don't know that – I think it's very – especially for the prices that Apple charges, I think it's very reasonable for everybody who buys any, any MacBook that they sell, right down to the 999 MacBook Air, to expect to get uh, at least four years out of it. So I don't know yeah. about that. It just seems like a weirdly arbitrary number for Apple to have picked, and 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 it's a number that I think is lower than the expected lifespan of of a MacBook. Again, if you were if they were selling two hundred dollar you know uh, Chromebooks, you know a four year replacement thing on the keyboard would be fine because it's you know it's you're lucky if you can get one of those things to last four years. Whereas you know two thousand dollar macbook pro boy that seems to me like it ought to be able to last four years and still be able to type a space bar <laughs> right so I don't.
1: Know. Uh, yeah yeah i don't know it's it really is a depressing outlook when you look at you know how long you've been able to use hardware in the past i mean i i used macbooks for many many years at a, at a chunk and honestly given that the The stuff that I was doing went more and more towards the web over the years, and continues to do so. I just, it's just hard to to justify buying into a MacBook that you don't think can last that long. Because I've had some that have been decimated by like liquid damage or other things yeah. that it could have easily still been using, you know, um, with no problem at all. It, it's just you really just open them up, you use them, they're reliable, everything works great, and then to have that reputation undercut in this way i think it's more about long-term damage than it is about short-term in in terms of the most vociferous users who then become activist users you know
0: right right because part of the argument is oh yeah the apple laptops do cost a lot more than the average competition but they're worth it and their build quality is higher and they last longer you know this undercuts all of that right well we'll see if they extend it I, i wouldn't be surprised if they wind up you know uh, now that they've broken the seal and done the hardest part, which is just start the program at all, I wouldn't be surprised if they extend it in some way, yeah. you know, as they say, quietly, quietly, <laughs> Apple <laughs> quietly extends MacBook <laughs> right. keyboard repair program. Right, all right, exactly. Matthew, we've gone way over the amount of time I told you I would take and I apologize for that, but I appreciate it so much. And no I, I cannot say how much I enjoyed your your exclusive story here behind the scenes with maps. Uh, uh, it's You just knocked it out of the park again, and I, I just couldn't have done a better job.
1: Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. Yeah. It means a lot. Keeping busy in the summer.
0: Keeping busy,
1: yes. I'm looking forward <laughs> to relaxing for um, until the end of the quarter.
0: Yeah. Uh, so everybody can uh, read your fine tweets at uh, Panzer P A N Z E R on the on the Twitter and of course see your read your fine work and the work of your staff at uh, techcrunch.com